Welcome to Sustain What, a series of conversations seeking solutions where complexity and consequence collide. That's basically on just about every sustainability frontier, from shaping a safer relationship with Earth's climate to building more civil online relationships with each other. As we say here in the Communication Initiative of the Columbia Climate School, the word sustainability has no meaning on its own. The first step towards success is to ask, sustain what, how, and for whom? This program contains audio highlights from hundreds of video webcasts, which you can explore on your own at j.mp slash sustainwhatlive. I'm Dale Willman, Associate Director of Columbia's Initiative on Communication and Sustainability. The webcast was created and is hosted most of the time by Andy Revkin, the longtime environmental journalist, sometime songwriter, and founding director of the initiative. Read his related dispatches at revkin.bulletin.com. And now, sustain what? Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending on where you are on this fast forward planet wrapped in a pandemic, which just keeps cascading these unexpected but predictable events like the president uh, being disclosed as having been uh, infected with COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And um, now the ramifications of that will spill forward in ways that seem very predictable perhaps, but contain so much complexity that it's hard to know how to behave sometimes, except for the basics like vote here in America. That's one of the basics, uh, whatever your stance. Uh, this is Andy. I'm Andy Revkin. This is the Sustain What webcast broadcast of the Earth Institute's new initiative on communication and sustainability. And the whole idea is of this thesis and my initiative is how do you make information matter when uh, the main means of communicating now are so uh, overloaded, uh, sometimes hijacked, often designed to distract you and divide you rather than to forge progress. Uh, I've been at this as a journalist for decades, and I decided the landscape of questions is way too big to fit into a conventional story. So conversations feel like a way to drive things forward. Um, and it's a wonderful day here to have a longtime uh, influence of mine, Thomas Homer Dixon, who uh, uh, famously wrote a book, um, gosh, 20 years ago, I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> the Upside of Down which you know has really really spun people around at that time and has had several books since then and now has been working for a long time on a new one commanding hope which we'll explore in a couple of minutes great to have you here from vancouver island in the west coast of canada where you say the smoke from the california fires is getting in your eyes that's it's a global world borders yes. are meaningless right certainly is and susan cox smith who's a, a futurist and who helps run a futuring trainings and all kinds of work at the uh, Changest, which is a consultancy and a futurist um, uh, uh, entity that yes. we'll learn more about. And you have a book out uh, that you were the uh, contributing editor to uh, on futuring, which I can show folks, uh, how to future, yes. which is something we would all benefit from now. Uh, and it isn't always about knowing the future. Maybe often it's not about knowing the future. It's about how you behave in a way that leaves you open to possibilities and risks. And, and you know, I reached out to Michael uh, Garfield, who's a young uh, blogger, writer, uh, artist, philosopher, connected with both the Santa Fe Institute, one of my favorite places to go think about complexity, and uh, also with the Long Now Foundation. Uh, you'll see some of his blog posts there. And he does a, a, a podcast called Future Fossils, 
which of course we all are, and which, reso <laughs> which resonates with me in the context of the Anthropocene, uh, having been a member of the Anthropocene Working Group and writing about that idea back in the early 90s. You know, we're laying down a landscape of fossils uh, going forward, uh, carboniferous uh, carbon layer and all kinds of things. And that signature will either be of a positive or something people will look at or whoever will look at a million or 10 million years from now and go, wow, that was a really screwed up moment in this planet's history. Or they'll look at it and barely see it. And that could either be because we've wiped ourselves out or because we've learned how to live with a smaller footprint. So enough of me. And now let's get to my guests. Um, I'm going to shift the landscape here so we can see everyone a little better. And Thomas, I, I did want to talk right away about the book and about the concept of kind of sh shaping hope and and energizing it, even at a time as you articulate, you know, and have articulated of sort of precipice living. Uh, how does that happen? And I could show a slide. I'm going to show an image that kind of conveys the basic thesis of the book. But you could start in right now by saying uh, how you brought what brought you from your early conceptions to where you are right now. And then I'll show you I'll show people the, the relevant image. Oh, here we go. I just showed that. Sure, Andy. So uh, my two earlier books, one of which you mentioned, The Upside of Down, uh, the book, The Ingenuity Gap and uh, and the book, the, Up the Upside of Down, were both highly diagnostic. They were books intended to sort of unpack the mechanisms for the crises that we face on the planet right now. And uh, The Upside of Down was finished in 2006, so not quite 20 years ago. Uh, the third book, I always intended to do three books, and this third one was supposed to be prescriptive. And inevitably, good prescription is way harder than good diagnosis. Uh, and uh, I started the book three times. Uh, twice I threw out tens of thousands of words. I started in 2012. So it took me almost eight years to write. Uh, and I, I realized that around 2016, after I had jettisoned the second batch of paper, uh, that I, 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 I needed to write it for my children, uh, who, who are now uh, 15 and 12, Ben, who's 15, and Kate, who's 12. And that uh, the thing that gave me the most personal anguish and that I needed to address was the possibility that they would lose hope in the future as they emerged as adults into what is liable to be an extraordinarily turbulent period, possibly a period marked by enormous violence. And, uh, and what is it that they can hang on to in terms of a positive vision of the future and motivating principles in their lives that would allow them to uh, continue to have hope? Because I, I, I had this epiphany at one point while I was standing on the cliff overlooking the sea here on Vancouver Island, that uh, if 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 they lost hope, then truly all would be lost in the future. That uh, that without hope, uh, then we just don't have the motivation really to fix the problems that we face, and we'll we'll fall apart, divided, and probably engage in enormous violence among each other around around the planet. So that was the starting point. Uh, and, and unfortunately, hope has you know a bad rap in the current discourse. It's regarded as a passive, perhaps a naive emotion, a distraction, something that inclines us to wishful thinking. And so the book is really intended to rejuvenate the idea and create a, a new concept of hope that can, that can allow us to push through the challenges we face, uh, not just us, but our children too. And you, and you do lay out, as I've, I'll show here from the introduction to the book, you have these three points. Maybe I'll just... Uh show them again, and then we'll get back to the discussion. So hold on one second while I do that. Um, 
you, you say we need to better understand first how we see the world the way we do. In other words, self self-awareness, self-perception, sort of Daniel Kahneman thinking fast and slow, you know, right. stepping back from your own thinking, your own emotions, cultural cognition, that whole body of knowledge that Dan Kahane has built around work yes. showing our filters. Uh, number two, we need to actively create together from our diverse perspectives, a shared story of a positive future. And what's really, that resonates for me because it gets to this other work that folks here at Columbia at the, uh, they run a difficult conversations laboratory. This is Peter Coleman and others mm -hmm. where, where they're talking about situations of intractable conflict where That's... you know you'll never agree on X, Y, and Z, but you know you have to work with each other in some way or other. So it's exactly. not like, it's not like solving a problem and it's not like, it's not like uh, coming to agreement even, it's different than that. So is that a key part of that? Absolutely. So it's interesting. I'm just about to write to Peter Coleman to connect my research institute with his work. Uh, he's, of course, a pioneer in the application of complex systems thinking to conflict resolution. Uh, I, I don't argue that we can find uh, some kind of perfect agreement or resolution of our differences, but we're in a situation, of, an extraordinary situation of shared fate on this planet now. We're either going to live together or we're going to die together. You know, I, I'm asked by people frequently, where can I go? Where can I go to get away from the impending chaos? Where can I go to escape from climate change? And my answer is actually nowhere. It's, it's not the case that some of us are going to thrive and some of us are going to die. It's the case that we will, we will either live together or die together. So that's a, that is a, a, a focusing principle that I emphasize in the book. Uh, that I think puts us in an unprecedented situation on this planet. And it can be perhaps the motivation to create that rough and ready uh, consensus among us for solving problems like climate change. I, I think this is really a pivotal moment in the species history. And then the third one to me feels like the hardest. It's how, how do we fully mobilize our extraordinary human agency to produce that future? Uh, I know it's impossible to pack, to unpack a a hefty and wonderful book, which I'm still not fully worked through, um, you know, 300 pages plus. Ah, you have a hard copy. I'm glad to see that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when you think about actualization, moving from conversation and understanding one's own motives and understanding the differences and having the constructive conversation, then it takes, then it gets to this final point, as you say, mobilization. Right. You think about the Green New Deal and big arguments, even among climate campaigners over the role of nuclear power or not nuclear power. I, I see that 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 Im the impediments there seem to be the biggest ones in some way, although they're all big. Right. So mobilization is a key concept here, and I emphasize it a lot at the end of the book. This is a profoundly political challenge we face right now. So I, I have uh, three components to my notion, larger notion of compounding hope. The first is honest hope, which is a hope that's grounded in a realistic assessment of the challenges we face that doesn't engage in wishful thinking. The second is astute hope, which is hope that uh, that is strategically smart, that uses this, that leverages this knowledge of how we think about the world and how other people think about the world to try to uh, build alliances, maneuver around those groups that would be obstacles to progress. And then the third is powerful hope, which is a hope that is really focused on a vision of the future, a positive vision of the future. And, uh, and I see this, I see these three things combining together in, in a political project. This is you know, profoundly a struggle between different visions of the future, uh, different, different political positions. Uh, and 
at the heart of that are power structures and the use of power. And we need to be, folks who want to make advances need to be very astute about the use of power strategically. So mobilization, when I say mobilization, I mean, I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in the streets, people organize politically to bring about change. We're not going to see what we need to see without that kind of action. Right. So let's broaden things out here a little bit um, and bring in Susan Cox Smith, who works at articulating concrete visions to how, how to address a complexity and address the kinds of deep uncertainty we have around us and still get things done in the context of a goal uh, or how to shape the goal. So Susan, when you think about uh, those those predicates that were laid out there, uh, can we call you Tad? Is that- Yes, you? please. Yeah. Um, um, what comes to mind in the context of the, the work you've done? Just describe a little bit how you work and then uh, what, what this makes you think. Uh, yeah, sure, thank you. Um, generally at Changest, we, our main objective is to help uh, organizations or people um, embrace uncertainty and to see the possibility inside that uncertainty rather than trying to um, mitigate all risk out of every future uh, scenario. So oftentimes we have to um, work with, say, a particular organization or uh, NGO or business and help them understand that when they put forth an official future that is supposed to be kind of an overarching mission statement for their organization that's always up and to the right, um, that uncertainty will happen, a pandemic will come, an earthquake will happen, um, climate change will not be abated, and there has to be some ability to um, pivot or reassess or shift um, what a preferable future looks like based on the uncertainties that are ahead or the realities of the present. So the pandemic is a really good example of that. Everybody kind of had their you know, preferred future all laid out, and now m almost every single preferred future is in the trash can somewhere. <laughs> so we all have to start rethinking what does a preferable future look like post-COVID. Um, one of the projects that I just completed, um, which I really, really enjoyed working on, was developing a convening process for the International Women's Development Agency out of Melbourne, Australia. And they needed a sort of workshop um, convening process where they could gather um, both NGOs and non-NGO, but feminist organizations to talk about what are the implications of some of these trends that we're seeing now um, in a post-COVID world 10 years from now, um, and how will they play out. But it needed to be something that they could do f through facilitation themselves um, which meant having to make some really, really simple tools for them to use to think about those things in a feminist context. So oftentimes our, our, our work is most often helping people to, to think pro proactively about the future, but not to make decisions or solve the problems that they perceive, but just to consider all the possibilities that might be born out of that future. So it's it's kind of a, and then I assume part of that is developing the capacities to handle all that. In other words, agility, I assume there's traits or uh, <laughs> capacities that you need to really 
Well, navigate. The, the book that we wrote is really kind of a non-expert explainer of how our process works. So it's 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 capacity building in in both a personal team organizational sense because now more than ever, and when we even proposed writing this book, we said 2020 is going to be a crazy year. There's a lot that's already, you know, on the books that we know is going to happen, you know, the 2020 election, Brexit, you know, and then everything else happened. So when, when the book was actually delayed from a July release to a September release, we were like, people really, really, really need this book. <laughs> um, and we could actually genuinely make the case for that because you know, the book was postponed because of COVID. Um, so it's, right. you know, we get involved in all of these, these issues as well. Um, so we, we like to try to feel like we can teach people how to have a futuring mindset. And that's really what the book is about. It's not an academic text on what futurists do or how they work or, you know, where, where these tools and processes came from. There, there are plenty of books out there about that. Um, this one's just kind of a very sensible, easy to read, you know, ground level entry book about how to think about the future. And, and is there kind of a um, like what's the first step toward that? Is there is there like on, on the list? The very first thing that we talk about is active sensing, and that is having an awareness of the world that that isn't only what's inside your bubble. So. Um, horizon scanning is a featuring term um, that you will hear a lot. Active sensing is a kind of horizon scanning that people can do every day. You know, you, we all do it anyway to some degree. When we wake up in the morning, you know, I saw a tweet go by earlier. It's like you can tell what time people get up now but based on their tweet about finding out that Trump was positive. So, you know, but that's the first thing we do. We look at our phones or we turn right. on the TV or, you know, turn on NPR on the radio. So that's a kind of acting, active sensing. And that is a skill and a capacity that we really encourage people to build on and improve to give them a better sense of, you know, what's actually out there in the world. And that relates to um, Tad's, uh, one of his... Um pieces on his list. First, we need to identify how and why we see the world the way we do. And that's this. Uh, I'll mention Kahneman again, the lesson in his book um, and in the work of others, behavioral scientists I've dug in on over the years, or people who focus on meditation, uh, mindfulness. It's uh, mm -hmm. stepping back from your own reactions, your own narrative, breaking narrative like making sure you're not stuck in a narrative it seems to be like when you wake up and look at the phone and you immediately are thinking in a partisan way about Trump as opposed to what does this mean for my community, et cetera. Is that, that, exactly. is that and, and yes. does that does that resonate with you, Tad? Yes, it does. A bunch of things resonate here, actually. Uh, I, I, you know, I it's sort of a situational awareness, maybe maybe Susan, that you're talking about a kind of uh, not in a somewhat more objective, realistic scanning of the horizon to see where we are in our current circumstances, as Andy is suggesting, stepping back in a somewhat more disinterested way. But the other thing I like about what I've seen of your work, Susan, in the book, but I haven't read the book yet, uh, is that it seems to think of uncertainty as a resource or uncertainty mm -hmm. as a source potentially of hope. 
because because that the complexity of our world makes for an extraordinary range of novel possibilities in the future. And what, uh, I think we're all inclined to deterministic thinking uh, without recognizing that there are these shocks that happen. And not all of these shocks have to be bad things. Some of them can be good. And some of them we may even be able to promote and exploit in certain ways, which is the point of a new institute I founded out here in British Columbia called the Cascade Institute. And, and so that, that very complexity and that uncertainty is something that gives us uh, possibilities for the future that are, are not yet expressed. And, uh, and, and I think it sounds like what you're trying to do is to cultivate people's comfort with that and recognition that that is, that is something we have to be prepared for and potentially ready to take advantage of when the opportunities arise. And I think that's a wonderful idea. It's something that I stress in my book too. Let's let's bring in Michael now too. Um, Michael, um, can you just describe your background and then a little bit about future fossils? And to me, this the value of Long Now Foundation is also breaking mental models. Uh, yeah, what yeah. time is uh, the ten thousand year clock? Uh, the pointing to that Cage John Cage composition that just now has had its first change in the notes, like after like I don't know twenty years. Uh, so, so what what comes to mind as you're thinking about this, and just a little snapshot of what drives you? Yeah, well, I mean, I was trained as a vertebrate paleontologist. I, I was lucky enough to spend my summers as a teenager doing dinosaur expedition work in Wyoming with uh, kind of notorious rock star paleontologist Robert Bacher, who yeah. uh, whose book in the '80s, Dinosaur Heresies, was a, a major influence on the change in public sentiment and, and the narrative around prehistory and like what we were actually looking at when we look back in time. And, you know, he, he inspired me into a very, uh, I would say, uh, you know, integrated way of thinking about history and the present and the future. Uh, you know, he was, he was rabidly against the siloing Sorry. of disciplines in, in both practice and education. And, uh, you know, so I, I was I was definitely prepared for uh, an you know an affinity to the work of the Long Now Foundation when I first found that book, and they were a big influence on Future Fossils podcast, which is in part trying to hold a uh, you know it's it's intentionally uh, s semantically ambiguous, right? <laughs> like it's it's yeah we're we might be future fossils. It's also about you know the uh you know the argument coming from certain branches of quantum physics that uh, we have to abandon our current understanding of time that you know that looking at alternative models of time uh in which for example we may uh, this is you know kind of far off to one side of this conversation but in which it may be the case that there are uh, that we're receiving information out of context from the future and so uh you know that's that's neither here nor there in some sense. But, you know, listening to this conversation, uh, one of the thing that comes, things that comes up for me is a talk that I heard uh, by Michelle Gervon, who's a, uh, affiliated with the Santa Fe Institute. She gave a talk for their community lecture series a while back on reservoir computing, which is, you know, using a reservoir of chaos, like a, a camera pointed at a bucket that's feeding uh, data from the ripples in the bucket into the uh, the workings of a machine learning algorithm. And so it's providing noise to the output of the algorithm. 
And this technique has empowered researchers predicting complex systems to, uh, to achieve better results than they believed were mathematically possible, longer forecasts. And, you know, when I think about, you know, just from a background in evolutionary dynamics, when I think about the future, when we're talking about the future, you know, and uh, Susan and talking about the and, uh, preferred futures, um, this is the output of a cosmological model that each of us is running based on a particular training data set. You know, the, the events of our lives and the way that our environments have been encoded into us and anatomically in our bodies, you know, our cognitive biases, what we're even capable of, of yep. understanding and thinking about. So, you know, this, this question about embracing uncertainty, I think, is really important because to, to give a shout out to Nora Bateson and her conversation around warm data, you know, this is uh, an encounter with the real that transcends the limitations of our models, you know, and I think that that's, you know, when, when people like Doug Rushkoff talk about narrative collapse, it has this kind of like anxious edge, like, you know, all of us are losing the structures uh, culturally, socially that we have depended on, you know, we're going through this sort of omnidimensional legitimacy crisis right now. Um, and so like in the midst of this uh, epistemological free for all, that we're in, um, there's hope, I think, that we can actually encounter the world uh, a little bit more authentically, a little bit more honestly, mm. you know, that if we're, if we're willing to embrace the, you know, the quote unquote, like VUCA, you know, um, nature of things that in a way this offers, this offers an opportunity for us to democratize certain, uh, truths that I think were until very recently kind of locked up within esoteric philosophical disciplines like Buddhism, you know, like it becomes incredibly obvious that Herodotus was right uh, about, you know, and I mean, anyway, so yeah, this is, yeah, I know. You know, it's like breaking our, breaking our, our expectations, I think is really key here. Yeah. Yeah. There's one other person I'll reference here too, uh, Dan Siegel, who's a UCLA uh, psychiatrist who's written a lot about the mind, the nature of the mind, as well as focused on the neurophysiology and the like. But he he talks about us all, each of us having a, a we map, a we map, meaning a map of the world outside of us, and a we uh, a me map, that our, our mind is partially both of those things. And that this gets to one of Tad's key reference points in his book of you need a bigger we map to create that potentiality that you described in points two and three. Um, and that's, what did that say? Heraclitus. <laughs> put it, put it closer. <laughs> Is that from Herodotus? He well, just, you're, he you're, just, you're he just talks about, you know, setting the foot in the river and. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was anyway, wondering. <laughs> change. Yeah, no, 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 no. Anyway, I please. I love post-it notes like that. Someone <laughs> did it. Someone did a whole uh, PowerPoint presentation once just using post-it notes. Yeah. Uh, but the we map, the me map is something. And that, but we've all just now we've all des described what I think is a key um, practice almost. I'm just going to show you. Uh, and for journalism, I, I've, I've just thought about this for a very long time, having been stuck in one narrative on climate change, you know, since 1988, writing my long articles. Of, oh, wow. Um, yeah. that, that, I think I have a that, copy of that somewhere. Yeah, maybe it's it's mine's tattering. 
but it's kind of like um, I, I use the hashtag these days, uh, narrative capture, the, to avoid narrative capture. And frankly, what I think people might not recognize yet is the practical value of the practices you're outlining both in Tad's book and Susan's um, practice and futuring and what Michael was just saying, which is that, you know, your narrative might be helpful in some ways, navigating, staying sane. You know, we all need guide. We all need sort of, you're either a Krugman person or, a, or you know, you have your choice of guides. Um, but but I, don't, I don't think ultimately we want to be captured by narratives, certainly external ones and possibly internal ones. So I just want to show you that I suddenly realized one day that avoiding narrative capture is breaking free is kind of like going into an Ikea store which uh, has anyone not been to an Ikea store? <laughs> and I, 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 I've been twice and it's always raises my blood pressure because you realize you're being led around through this path. And as you can see in this, this, I this pair of tweets, uh, you know, do you want to be captured by the conduit leading you to slaughter, meaning or to consumption? Or do you want to be captured by a consumptive narrative of a store? Or do you want to know how to get out? So I, I think that's kind of like, it sounds like that's a key trait that you're all getting at. I, you know, say no if not. <laughs> if I could intervene just for a second, uh, so we, I, I gather you're somewhere in the middle of the bookend, but uh, towards the end, I mean, my, uh, I think we're very much on the same page, all of us here. Towards the end of the book, I <clears throat> provide some tools to try to create, I guess, opportunities for narrative breakout, especially in our worldviews. Uh, I have this notion of a high dimensional state space, worldview state space that uh, allows us to sort of think about where we are in terms of our perspective on, on uh, political systems and, and social possibilities, where other folks might be in terms of their perspectives to see possible pathways through this multi-dimensional state space. And the really exciting thing of, that this idea um, raises for me, I think, is the possibility that there are quite a few and perhaps an enormous number of perspectives on social reality that we are not even aware of. They don't, we don't even know they exist as possibilities. And, uh, and to, if, to the extent that we, can, we, have a, we have a representation of the full range of possibilities available to us, we can start exploring those other, other unexplored uh, basins of attraction in what I call the mindscape. And uh, uh, we, are, we are trapped in, in highly destructive perspectives on the world and on each other. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, but at the same time, I think things like the pandemic and the high connectivity among us, the increasing frequency of shocks that are rocking the world are offering us the possibility to flip potentially very quickly into other perspectives, uh, large portions of humanity, perhaps in very negative directions. I talk about the Mad Max world but also, I think that there are possibilities out there that, that, again, we haven't explored yet that could be very positive, that could take us to new places, uh, um, emphasizing this notion of shared fate uh, on the planet that I talked about earlier. One thing that I wanted to, to challenge us all with is the fact that the interpretations of the chaos around us have dimensions, have layers too. Uh, for some, the pandemic chaos is really about the economy. For others, it really is the health problem. And their solutions to those two challenges can be completely divergent. The lockdown, this is a big chunk of the debate between libertarians and liberals over, over COVID policy. Right. If you're defining the problem as 
economic and and that the disaster is economic and that those larger in health impacts are the key or that we just need to get this virus under control to get the economy going again right. if you that's where you don't even have common frames of of reference that seems like a in a multi-dimensional landscape which is where we're at right now it seems that's really right. problematic so so susan it would be great to get you back in on like if you had a libertarian and a liberal in the room you know, an anti-masker but who's someone who's like smart and trying to for whatever reason just has a different interpretation of what to do and someone who's really communitarian and says we what would you do how do you start that ball rolling Well, we one thing that we actually encourage a lot in our work is that any any team or organization that we you know partner with or work for or consult with um, that their teams be diverse, so that they're you know they're not only inclusive but they are diverse. So they incorporate a lot of different points of view because one thing about a preferable future is you have to ask the question right. preferable for who. And so when you're sitting in a room with people with very, very oppositional perspectives of, you know, what the future should be, um, one of the things that we try to bring to the table is that, you know, the history of, of futures is actually started at, at RAND, and it was about thermonuclear destruction. I can never say that word. Um, and so there were a lot of different perspectives about you know, how to deal with that, or whether, you know, first strike capability was, was the way to go. Um, so you're, when you talk about futures now, there is, there is a real effort um, in, in younger futurists and, and our organization as well to really, really try to avoid a singularly Western perspective about how you address the situation. Um, it's, it's not just so much a, you know, communitarian and libertarian, is it a Buddhist or is it, you know, someone who comes from, um, a country that is being hit in a very, very different way. So it's, it's maybe not an economic or a pandemic question. It's something else entirely. Um, so when I think that's one part of how we try to get people to think about futures, it's not just about, you know, what do you think that me map, but also starting to bring in that me map idea of, but not just the we of, you know, people who live in my town or in my country, but, you know, a much, much, much wider universe of participants and what that preferable future looks for, looks like for those types of people. And there, there was a comment that came in preceded by a, a line of Z's. Z's. <laughs> From the machinist, I don't know who. It is. Oh, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> but but he's say he's saying get to the point, which which we all want to do. I mean, we're still early. We're we have a half half hour to go, and that's the that's the, is the transition here. I think I think you're actually being we're all being very constructive about getting to the point right here, and which is where do you start? You know, uh, I think the menu, the set of ways to approach a day or a week or the development of a company or um, your approach to making for rational policy in your community. There, there, there clearly is directionality here. I do think that one of these, you, you, what you just brought up about these different um, states of reference, whether it's Buddhism, think of the climate talks for 30 years, which I've been writing about, 
where you have least developed countries, developing countries, countries that have, were developing and now are superpowers like China, countries like Russia with, that are all about petro, petro resources and, and Saudi Arabia and the United States, which is a little bit of everything. And there was never, there was always this expectation until like 2009 that we need a contract, you know, yeah. something we, a binding contract. That was the treaty that was hoped for targets and timetables. And now Paris Agreement has some of that plasticity, the ability for not necessarily Buddhists, but for, you know, different countries to come to the table with their capacities and what they can do. And, and it gets hammered because it's, it's soft. You know, it's not binding. But to me, it feels like the only thing, the only way forward on these. So that, that maybe this gets to what Tad was saying about the nature of, of brokenness. It was 2009, pretty much, when that model broke right. for a treaty. And right. it, there were always people talking about this. Thomas Schelling in 1991 with others was saying, we need soft law, not hard treaty. No one was listening then. So so maybe maybe we can do a quick round on the merits of brokenness. Like right now we're very broken at several scales. Uh, so do you see this? Could you articulate if that feels like an opportunity? Maybe we'll start with Michael. Well, yeah, I right at the beginning of the uh the U.S. coronavirus closures back in March, I, I put out an episode of Future Fossils where I was drawing on all of the complex systems research that I've read over the years, talking about the way that systems, you got to think of like this in terms of multiple time and spatial scales, right? Um, when you look at mass extinctions, when you look at social revolutions, <coughs> one of the things that all of you know, all of these have in common is that there's a kind of uh, th things reach a level of, of sophistication and network complexity that there are latencies inherent in the network that has grown uh, on the basis of the economies of scale. You know, like if you look at the, the global economy, it got to us, it got as big as it did uh, because of what you know Brian Arthur calls you know increasing returns and yeah that uh, episode 139. So we get these economies of scale that grow things so that we have like global just-in-time supply chains and you know the internet connecting everyone's uh, mentation. And then a challenge happens that uh, makes it impossible for the society to respond or the, eco the ecosystem, if you look at you know, mass extinctions, to respond uh, fast enough to adapt uh, given the latencies in the system. And so things fragment. Um, you know, this is very common in the collapse of civilizations. You look at, you know, the the, uh, the Chacoan peoples here in New Mexico. Uh, SFI's Stephanie Crabtree wrote a great piece about this for the transmission series about how they didn't just disappear. They they scattered, actually. You know, uh, shout out to Annalie Newitz and her book Scatter, Adapt, and Remember. Yeah. How you deal with this stuff. You know, that there is... Um, fragmentation not only seems like a, uh, a harbinger, you know, like you, if you look at the work of people like Miguel Fuentes, who noticed that the social graphs fragment in the expectation of a crisis, you see it in uh, polarization now. It's like, I don't know that polarization is the problem. I think it is the, uh, the global cognitive, you know, collective cognitive process trying to you know split up in and come to its you know solutions from multiple different angles 
because we can't enforce a, a common narrative anymore because the processes that require that are are too slow. And so that you know it's it's um, I think you know stepping back a little bit, kind of taking a non-dual perspective on this, it is both uh, anxiety inducing as well as sort of you know alternatively uh, hopeful that we're wa we're watching collective narratives come apart and we're watching people uh, huddle up. It, it reminds me of like the increase in mutation rate that we see in bacterial cultures when you shock them with environmental toxins. You know, so it, it's it's a it's a it's a step into a, a faster, more innovative, more creative approach to thinking through this stuff, uh, even if it is uh, kind of more, uh, you know, unpleasant to be inside of it. Yeah, right, here we are. Well, I remember um, there was a lecture given by a Cornell business professor. Um, oh, gosh, I'm blanking on his name. 10 years ago that I saw where he said um, he was talking about chronocentrism, where every 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 generation feels it's special. Right. You know, and, um, you know, the great the greatest generation, <laughs> etc. But he said this time really is special, <laughs> meaning this juncture is is bigger than other junctures, bigger than other challenges. So Tad um, is broken. The upside of the upside of brokenness really is yeah, what you wrote about. Broken, brokenness. I, 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 you know, I endorse everything that Michael just said. I have a, I'm going to take a slightly different cut at it. Uh, I think uh, prior to the pandemic, the way I was thinking of the world, and it was one of the reasons I initiated the Cascade Institute, is that it, things are sort of locked up, uh, especially when it comes to, for instance, our economic structures, uh, trajectory of carbon emissions. We weren't, it, it was really hard to see where the leverage points were in the system because pieces, everything was rigid. And, and uh, in terms of our economies, our worldviews, uh, uh, technological change, possibilities for technological change. I mean, there were some things happening, but but it was very incremental. And all of a sudden, with the pandemic, it's like it's like all the puzzle pieces are in motion simultaneously, and we're not really sure how the system's going to reconfigure itself. So there are cascades happening all over the place. It's 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 broken in a way. You know, there's been a shock, and things have fallen apart. And there are opportunities for reconstructing this system uh, that have never haven't existed in a long time. So I, I want to take machinists injunction very seriously, because I think that uh, what we have in this in this more much more fluid situation is opportunities to get beyond that contract model you were talking about, Andy, uh, uh, and and actually use uh, the kind of political mobilization that I was mentioning earlier to, uh, for instance, work through financial markets, uh, changing the incentive structures for investments, for instance, in the fossil fuel industry shifting enormous amounts of investment towards green energy technologies. Um, we're, we're on the cusp of, of what could be called the Minsky moment, uh, where, where you have a, a massive shift of investment out of fossil fuel industries into in, in other directions and extraordinary amounts of stranded carbon, uh, sucking of, of fossil fuel wealth out of the economy. It could be, it, it's not necessarily going to be an easy process. It could be very destructive. Uh, to existing economic models, to geopolitics, it could destabilize geopolitics around the world. But but uh, I, I see the political mobilization process, millions of people in the street saying, we need to do something about this, perhaps led by children, as having a huge potential influence on financial markets, 
and in turn on investment patterns for new energy technologies. And that's completely independent of the kind of contract Paris Accord, Kyoto models that we've been working with up to this point. It could happen very fast, be highly nonlinear, uh, and uh, could put us really on a very different trajectory. Uh, a rocky one, but uh, in a, to a different future from where we seem to be going before the pandemic. And Susan, so spinning to you on this brokenness concept and and corporate, the corporate world too, which you interface with quite a bit. Um, in all of these arenas, there's this pressure between rebuilding the broken thing and sort of pro-generation, building something new. Uh, I've done probably 10 sessions on this webcast with different folks focused on that dynamic, this tension between the pull of the, the now, the existing norms and the push towards something new. And I agree that, again, young people clearly are capable of breaking those norms in a pretty powerful way, jogging things. The transparency that we now have through digital awareness, through remote sensing on bad practices and mining and whatever gives us the potential information flow. But, when, but how does that feel when it gets to corporate behavior? And is that scalability there, do you think, or what comes to mind? I think about um, brokenness always in terms of it's a feature, not a bug. Um, we, we are where we are right now because the people who were in charge of making the decisions wanted it to be this way. You know, this is how we get to Trump and this is how we, so, you know, we're talking history and the past, um, but it's, it's the decision makers and it's why we want to encourage everyone to think about the future because they're going to be making decisions going forward. So when you want to, you know, give credit to youth to have the ability to make change, they also have to have the agency to do that. And it seems very, very, very unlikely in this current climate that there will be any agency granted to anyone who wants to, to shift the, someone else's preferable future. So we, we need to give people hope and we need to give them you know, the heart to think about things differently, to recognize the uncertainties and to see where the implications land if this decision is made instead of that decision. Um, and to really believe that they can find the agency and find the influence and you know, raise themselves up to be better positioned um, into, <laughs> um, you know, building a better world that is better for more people, not fewer people. That's, uh, there you go. And that's that dynamic. I do think, you know, how does this relate to, again, a 20th century norm, a multi-century norm of top-down thinking for solutions versus bottom-up? What I said about the Paris Agreement versus the Framework Convention was one. But at a bigger scale, I've, I've had um, conversations with sustainability folks, a guy named Heriberto Cabezas, who five years ago, when the Pope came to New York City to drive the Sustainable Development Goals, there was a meeting and this guy stood up and gave a long talk about his models for getting humanity through the next 200 years. And his bottom line was, Coordinated manipulation of six variables is necessary to navigate the, the next 200 years. And I'm thinking, oh, right. I kind of went, uh, you know, hello. <laughs> it doesn't sound like the world I know or the world I would want. And, and when I think about that, it 
makes me implicitly understand more about the, the, the importance of bottom-up or community out or person-to-person um, -person connectivity, which gets discounted so often as being like on carbon, you know, we, my choices are meaningless, but is there a bigger value? And this is for Tad again first, maybe to that end of things being more enabled. I think so, but boy, we're learning some harsh lessons right now about the, the implications of connectivity and social media. So you may remember in the upside of down at the end, I sort of waxed optimistic about uh, the possibilities for collective intelligence and in humanity because of our networked reality, the, the newosphere, the, 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 the emergence of uh, higher order intelligence because we could all solve these problems wired together. And uh, I think one of the harshest lessons we've learned in the last uh, 15 years or so, especially in the last five, is, is the power of these technologies, especially when they are dominated by certain corporate interests, to produce a kind of epistemic fragmentation, to divide us into multiple communities where we don't share any, any common understanding of reality or fact. Um, that is probably one of the most corrosive things that could happen to dem democracies. If you don't have a, a, a starting point of agreement of basic notions of reality, then you, you can't have the Agora uh, yeah. process in which you, you come together to resolve pluralistically your problems. So, um, <clears throat> so uh, this is part of the brokenness we face right now. I think, you know, as Michael was saying before, this kind of thing creates the possibility for combinatorial innovation among these different perspectives, these fragments of the epistemic world that could create incredibly new possibilities in terms of of, of ideas about how to live on the planet. But there seems to be so little possibility at the moment for building consensus across these, these communities. Yeah. And I, 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 I don't know where to take this. This is an open question I leave open at the end of the book. Um, without some, some consensus, which is probably um, created within that broader conception of the we that Susan was talking about before and that I emphasize in the book, a species-wide, multi-biota conception of the we on this planet without some consensus within that as to what our desired roughly what our desired future is what our reality is about then we really are lost i think and uh, it's an enormous challenge for us so the connectivity is cutting both ways right at the moment and the social media are cutting both ways and it's a story that's rapidly unfolding i don't know where it's going to take us yeah, I would, like you, I was a, um, when I was doing my Dot Earth blog at the New York Times, which I started while I was still a reporter, um, 2007, right through 2012, all that upside, the upside of connectivity had me completely convinced, as you were yeah. saying, that a noosphere is, is, is there, the planet of the mind, uh, the sort of protective capacity of a global awareness. And, and then it all came unraveled. All, yeah, and absolutely. there were a few people warning me at that time. And I, I had my narrative capture. <laughs> Uh, and then, of course, we've had the election and so many things. The documentary yeah, yeah. Social Dilemma, I think, is getting at that pretty powerfully right now. Absolutely. Now, just very 30 seconds. Andy, yeah. it did not have to be this way. This is a, per a particular manifestation of social media within a, a corporate context where, where social media are used to magnify certain kinds of emotions, especially status anxiety emotions right. that, that divide us from each other. This is not an inevitable pathway with these technologies. Is it too late, though? Maybe, maybe say. Susan, uh, would have you dealt with this aspect of the information environment as it relates to futuring? 
And I'm just showing, by the way, the, the social dilemma, uh, which I highly recommend. I, ha I personally have not seen it, but I, I've heard a lot of interesting things about it. Um, I, it's something that's interesting about the, the work that we do and the people that we work with, and particularly when we teach the How to Future program to you know, non-experts, is how much everyone believes that the future equals technology. Yeah. And we always try to work in steep categories, so we do social, technological, economic, environmental, and technological. And so we, when we want people to talk about the future or trends or horizons or innovations, things that they see coming, they will automatically go to new technology. This will solve my problem. This right. will make our world better. And we really, really have to start pulling apart this belief that future equals technology. Because in a lot of cases, particularly around climate, sometimes less technology is the answer. So are we willing to consider you know, what it's going to take, not just individually, but in a, in a more global way, less technology to make the world better? Because it's a very, you know, not uh, sort of opposite day perspective of you know what the future actually means or how we'll actually get there. And Michael, maybe uh, as a technology focused communicator, blogger and and a podcaster, you know, and I still spend most of my communication time here. I've written another book that came out uh, recently, but um, I is it, is it is it hopeless? Are we just playing catch up just as those reporters who are trying to catch up constantly with Trump's 20,000 lies? Are we doomed to be playing catch up with these capacities that are just hijacking the system so powerfully? Well, I mean, I haven't really brought this up on the call, but I run the social media for the Santa Fe Institute, and it is a very, very difficult job. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I was a beta tester for Google Glass. And I guess that was sort of my, my, my critical moment where I was, you know, swept up into enthusiasm about the possibilities of augmenting my own sure. perception and cognition, you know, thinking about uh, characters like Manfred Max and Charles Strauss's science fiction novel Accelerando and the way he was empowered by these, these tools. And that, the glass came out the summer of Edward Snowden's disclosures about the surveillance state. Um, and everything turned, and I ended up writing this essay series on how this fit into this, you know, 500 million year old evolutionary arms race going back at least to the evolution of the eye and the way that, that uh, it, it is a sort of ratcheting, runaway, positive feedback, you know, what they, what, you know, they call a red queen race, right? Um, but these things tend to lead us over cliffs, and, you know, there are... I, I'm sure everyone listening to this call knows there are thresholds carrying capacities. There's there's a point at which the arms race becomes so fast you fall off the treadmill or the treadmill breaks. And I think we're looking at that. You know, I, to to speak to 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 try and bundle a, a lot of what was just said. Um, you know, the the revenue model of a corporation is kind of like the the cosmological model of an individual person. It's based on the sensory apparatus that you have, the cognitive apparatus that you have, your ability to perceive and to respond. And right now, um, 
I think, you know, we're looking at the incentives that have shaped the priorities of both our institutions and each of us as individuals. And, you know, when you look at it in that light, um, a lot of the, the problem, the sort of I mean, the predicament that we're in is that people tend to, uh, they tend to want to cleave to what will keep them in a cohesive social unit yeah. rather than what is abs absolutely objectively true so long as the problem is abstract so long as the you know the the risk involved in believing a counterfactual is less than the risk of uh, you know alienating everyone that you depend on socially and so the collective action problems of things like climate change are really in part because for so many people, these are still abstract phenomena, you know, and as extreme weather events and so on start to become the norm, I think that we will see both individuals and societies and, and the institutions in those societies shift because our, our uh, sensory apparatus and our tools and our resources for sense making in this uh, are, are changing. And that's actually one of the problems that we're having right now. Generally, um, I love giving a shout out to uh, Jamie Stantonian, who wrote a great piece on Medium called Apocalyptic Cults and the Early Modern Information Explosion, looking at how similar this was uh, after the advent of the printing press and, you know, the, the way that people were suddenly empowered to make pamphlets. Uh, you know, it, it shook things up. It, it challenged the, the narratives and it challenged our sense of objective reality in a way that I think, you know, looking at social media is just a, you know, a, a foreshadowing of what uh, York University philosopher Regina Rini calls the loss of the epistemic backstop due to deep fakes. I wrote a, a science fiction novella a couple years ago about, about what happens when we lose our ability to trust our recordings. But, you know, this is, this again, you know, uh, Tad, you brought up the combinatorial piece of this and the what got me interested in in you know complex systems research in the first place was work co-authored by martin nowak and daniel uh, uh, natalia kumarova and, and david krakauer back in the late 90s early 2000s on the evolution of syntax and how you know the, their their model suggested that our societies got complex enough to merit so many different words that we had to learn, to memorize, to communicate so many different situations, it eventually became a tax on our memory and we started making so many errors in communication that applying a combinatorial model for language rather than a, a syntactic model became both easier, uh, lower burden on us individually in terms of our ability to remember everything we needed to say and also uh, it, it opened up this whole new space of possibility of being able to describe abstract things to one another, you know, to be able to communicate possibilities rather than, you know, uh, common prior. So, you know, I, I actually see, you know, in the sense that evolution seems to ratchet into more and more, uh, you know, diverse ecosystems over the long, long game. You know, I think that having a, a global community at which people are sort of uh, psychologically disposed to focus on different timescales, 
could act and and that's just how it's going to be because of individual human psychological development you know i think that that's actually going to be a good thing and that you know i would i would urge us to push even beyond uh transcultural humanism and into the kind of questions that are being asked by projects like the interspecies io project that vince cerf and peter gabriel you know have been have been uh touting I'm over. You know, yeah, looking, I, yeah, I I want to right. do a session on their work because I think it's a very interesting aspect of this. So so we're kind of toward the end here. We could go a little longer. I, I don't have a hard stop. I don't know about you guys, but I wanted to sort of synthesize here now some next steps, including the possibility of the next step simply being a follow up conversation. I mean, Michael, you've referenced some pretty amazing uh, resources that I'm going to scroll back through this talk to nail down. Um, I tweeted a couple of them, but I can't keep up. Which means this is a rich landscape. And I guess like the next step for me is making sure, as was just said, I think it was Susan who said, you know, the cultural diversity and orientation diversity around people in the conversation. And I'm sure this is in in Ted's book too, is vital. And here we are, we're mostly North American. We are North American centric. We're all developed country folks. And like next Wednesday, I'm doing a session on the future of populations, but with a, a futurist who's in Nairobi and she studies the youth bulge there. Uh, and I want to make sure we're kind of capturing that width as well. Um, if we had a final sort of reiteration of a couple of things, it would be great to summarize. Tad, I guess I'll maybe I'll show those those last points, you the three points again as, as a framing uh, sort of work to do core and then and susan if you could weigh in one last moment that would be great too so tad the to achieve the goals that you lay out in the book to command hope as you command a tool to sort of generate and pass it forward what would be a first step beyond everyone reading your book (laughs) what, what does that look like which is fine. I think it's 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 right here on my desk. It's uh... yeah. So <clears throat> you know, as I mentioned, I I wrote the book for my children, really, and in, in in response to concern about the kind of story they would tell themselves as they emerge into this world. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, a couple of first steps. One is, of course, very much like we've been talking about, and Susan's been emphasizing the importance of self-understanding and other understanding. And grounding that, is, and I try to provide some tools, some uh, uh, mapping tools that anybody can use in the book to graphically represent our own emotional responses and other people's emotional responses to the, to the challenges we're facing, to uh, lay out this multidimensional state space of worldview possibilities. All of this is usable by any individual. I think those are enormously useful tools to increase our, astute, uh, our what I would call astute hope our strategic awareness of our of our environment, so that we can be more effective in trying to get to where we want to go and changing the world. Uh, but the other thing that I think it's important for folks to realize, um, uh, we tend tend naturally to uh, extrapolate trends. It's just a very basic cognitive bias. We're not good at at uh, imagining nonlinearities, especially possibilities that are in what Stuart Kaufman would call the adjacent possible, that are invisible but just across the boundary. Uh, and they're just sitting there. And this is what I tell my kids who are now 
just blown away by what's happening in the world. Every day there's something, you know, that yeah. just shocks them. I tell them that this is really one of the most exciting times to be alive. It, it is, as you were suggesting, Andy, it is a, a, a hinge moment in human history that uh, will determine so much else going forward. This is really a critical generation or two and everything's on the line and some very profound, not just technological challenges, but moral challenges, how we think about each other, how, what kinds of ethical principles we use to order our, our, our world are being discussed in real time right now. And, and it's, it's time to get involved and get engaged and, and be marching in those streets to try to make a difference or, or engaged with that, whatever ever skill set you happen to have. So it's possible to have what I would call, or Ernest Becker would call our hero story that gives you a sense of purpose in this extraordinary time. And that's, and that's, uh, uh, and that's a, a, a positive reason for hope, I believe, and uh, a starting point for moving forward. And I, I also, I think you've hit on something important too, which is not to withdraw. To lean forward into it, that's right. Not to, to lean in. There's so many people I know who've like gotten off of social media. I, I really like a lot of Jaron Lanier's thinking, but I reject the thesis of his last book, which is turn off everything. To me, it, there's enough upside potential in the connectivity that we have here today and that I've had with people around the world through this webcast that I think we can avoid the hijacking and work to get the most out of it. The, 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 the noosphere is not dead, I guess. That would be my hashtag. It's the noosphere lives. Uh, and Susan, you know, for you, um, What's the next step? You know, when you, you for your future reign, what is the wish you have that people would take away? <laughs> well, uh, my kids are a little bit older, so they are nineteen and twenty-two, and they're both in college. And the we always talk about how much they dislike having the futurists as parents, <laughs> um, <laughs> because we can always tell them, "Well, it's going to be like this," and they're like, "No, it's not." Yes, it is. <laughs> That's very so um, it's there's a lot of I told you so. <laughs> um, but we also intentionally tried to raise our kids to be resilient. Um, and I think that's a really, really important capacity that that coming generations that are coming out now will need to be invested with and taught. And that's another reason that we wrote How to Future, because the 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 curriculum for, for our How to Future workshops and the programs that we developed started at the Duke TIP program um, and then uh, moved to IED, which is a design school in Barcelona. We taught a lot in Dubai um, because these are all future-focused groups, organizations, communities, um, generations, and we see that it really invests in, in all of our students this opportunity and ability to, to consider, you know, how do you thread a preferable future through all this mess? Um, and it gives people um, something to, to sort of hold on to and a way of thinking about the future that can lead to a more positive um, aspect. Not all futures are, are perfect. No future is perfect. But if you can build this capability within yourself, there are there's well, a, I sure hope there can be or there, there perhaps is a syllabus for young people for that learning. We could work on that. I'd be happy to help. The Teachers College has a <laughs> uh, Teachers College of Columbia has a, a sustainable futures focus now. They have a, there's a center emerging there. So that that I think that feels like my takeaway right now. I'm writing down a note. 
afterwards, John, I'm going to email you and we'll follow up. <laughs> there, there's a guy, Jer Jeremy Zalar, who was uh, Great, at the New York good. Times when I was developing Dot Earth. He was the blog architect, like how do you actually build stuff? He then went on to work in government on how do you make mm -hmm. websites work for, for the taxpayers who pay for them. And he's, he was the first guest on this show back in March 15th, on a Sunday. He said, make sure everyone says, what are they going to do? One little thing different like tomorrow or that can incrementally build the capacity that they're thinking about. And so that's the thing I'll do. <laughs> and uh, Michael, you know, we could we can work together, Michael, as well. So it's just been great to have you all here today. Michael, Michael, I, why am I keep thinking of you as Galbraith? <laughs> Michael Garfield, who is a uh, look him up for his podcast, Future Fossils, for his blogging at now, Long Now. Ted Homer Dixon with his, his essential new book, uh, Commanding Hope. And uh, Susan Cox Smith from Changist, a futurist, with a plan to build the capacity in everybody to actively future, to, to thread the needle each day. <laughs> Not a needle, it's threading a needle through a very complex and evolving landscape of risk. I call it gray rhinos and black swans all around us, and they're all changing and morphing. So thank you all for being here today. I wanted to show folks a little bit about where we're headed um, the next couple of days. Um, I had this all set up and now it's all gone away. So there you go. I will, um, let me just take us back to the uh, group shot here. Someday I'll master this process of being producer, tweeter, whatever. I'm Andy Revkin again at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. This is Sustain What? It's a global online conversation identifying solutions to the complicated, shape-shifting and epic challenges of humanity's great acceleration and now the great pause that's been enforced on us by the uh, emergence of an interesting virus. A prime focus is making sense of and getting the most out of the planet's fast-forward information environment. It's the one Earth system changing faster than the actual environment. This webcast is produced as part of my work building Columbia University's new Earth Institute initiative on communication and sustainability. Every few days we're here doing another conversation. As soon as we're done, please share the link you've been watching on with friends and colleagues far and wide. This gets archived immediately and get in touch with ideas. You can see in the info information bar scrolling there distractingly at the bottom how to do that. And uh, tune in on Sunday when I have a fantastic, Sundays are our arts and hearts, kick back from all this serious cogitation. And um, uh, Jimmy Kalagan, a great Canadian songwriter who wrote this the most amazing haunting song about a fire, a wildfire ever, uh, Cold Missouri Mountain will be on. I mean, Cold Missouri Waters will be on with several great wildfire experts and other singers and songwriters. And then next week, on we'd go into more episodes of Sustain What. So thank you all really today for being here. This is thrilling. And I'd thank love you. to have you back sometime. You know, I hope you don't think of this as a one-shot deal. The <laughs> Noosphere lives. There we go. Hold it up even closer. Wait, I'm going to make that. I'm going to close out by maximizing that screen. Hold on one second. <laughs> yes. Thanks very much. Um, thank you, Tad. There we have it. The Noosphere lives if you if you choose to make it so yeah. every day. Thank you all, okay? And Thank take you. care. Bye-bye. See you again. Thank you for listening to Sustain What? A production of the Initiative on Communication and Sustainability at Columbia University's Climate School. If you like, send your feedback or ideas for future shows to j.mp slash sustainwhatfeedback. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and build a better world. Okay.